Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Pulled from the hottest topics coming across our news desk, I'm Alcina Lloyd, and this is Housing Wire Daily. Today's episode features a roundtable discussion on economic and policy trends impacting servicers, as well as a look ahead at strategies they should employ in 2022. The conversation features CoreLogic's chief economist, Frank Nothaft, and members of his team, as well as members of the Housing Policy Council and Loan Care. But before you listen, here's a brief word from our sponsor. Want to give your customers the streamlined mortgage experience they expect? Fannie Mae's digital mortgage solutions are fast, efficient, contactless, and they save paper. Our digital mortgage solutions provide efficiency for you, convenience for your customers, and deliver a great experience at every stage of the mortgage cycle. Own the mortgage experience with Fannie Mae's innovative solutions. Visit FannieMae.com go digital. Just delighted to be moderating this panel today. Um, Pete Carroll, Executive Public Policy, Industry Relations at CoreLogic. I'm delighted to have a number of really wonderful panelists joining us in today's discussion. That includes uh, Frank Notaft, uh, Dr. Frank Notaft, Chief Economist of CoreLogic. We're joined by Meg Burns, Executive Vice President of Housing Policy Council. Um, Mike Blair, Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of Loan Care and Sapin Bafna, Senior Leader, Advanced Delivery Engines at CoreLogic. So thank you all to, uh, thank you to all of our panelists for joining us today. Um, we're gonna begin this uh, session with a presentation from uh, Dr. Notap, who's gonna take us through the latest economic and policy trends impacting the housing industry. So um, uh, Frank, please take it away. Hey, thank you so much, Pete. And uh... I want to thank our fellow panelists for joining us today and all of you who are uh, joining on our webinar today. Uh, I'll be providing a, an update on the macroeconomic backdrop as well as how it pertains to the housing and mortgage markets. I always like to start with a little bit on the macro because the macroeconomic environment is just so important as serving as a, a baseline for what we expect to happen ultimately in the housing and the mortgage markets as well. Uh, this slide just summarizes some of the points I'll make. I'll start off again with macro, talk a bit about housing, and then finally, just point out a couple of risks that I do see lurking out there in the coming year. Well, let's start off with economic growth. Uh, economic growth is uh, really uh, actually quite uh, strong here in terms of our recovery in 2021. We're expecting about 6% economic growth this year. That would be the fastest annual growth rate in 37 years in the US, the fastest since 1984. Thanks in large part to a very strong fiscal policy response and uh, monetary policy accommodation by the Federal Reserve Board. Uh, the Fed has done a lot in terms of keeping short-term interest rates as close to zero as possible. And on top of that, having a very accommodative quantitative easing program, which is fancy words for saying that they're buying up a lot of treasury bonds and mortgage-backed securities. And when you have a, an investor with deep pockets like the Fed coming into the capital markets and buying up lots of bonds and mortgage-backed securities, 
it helps to raise the price and push the yields down lower. And indeed, that's what we've seen in the market as well. Now, for economic growth, at the pace that we're expecting this year and in 2022, 4% growth in 2022, that should continue to push the unemployment rate lower. We expect the unemployment rate to be down to about 4.7% at the end of this year, down to about 3.6% at the end of 2022. Now, uh, when just before the pandemic hit, we were at about 3.5% unemployment rate. So if we continue on this uh, pace of economic growth that we anticipate, by the end of 2022, the unemployment rate will be back to where it was pre-pandemic. Now, we've had a lot of job growth. Uh, when the pandemic hit in March and April of 2020, we lost more than 20 million jobs in the US. Now, we've gained most of them back. In fact, we've gained three quarters. 75% of those jobs are back. But the uh, job creation has not been uniform across the country. It has not been equal across industries or occupations. And just looking at it geographically, uh, we've had full recovery in jobs in some select states. And I've highlighted those uh, states in green at the top of this chart. So there's, there are several states where uh, we've recovered all the jobs lost or, or even more than uh, jobs that have been lost. So in Utah and Idaho, employment today is already above where it was pre-pandemic. However, that hasn't been shared equally around the country. And there are several uh, states where uh, job growth is clearly lacking, uh, where jobs are still down substantially. Not even half of the jobs lost last March and April have come back. Likewise, if we looked across industry, we look across certain occupations, in-person occupations, we would see similar types of uh, stark differences in job creation or job uh, recreation uh, in the economy. So not equally shared across the economy. And I think that'll uh, last uh, uh, as we get into 2022 as well. I mentioned the accommodative monetary policy from uh, the Federal Reserve uh, Board, and that has really helped to push mortgage rates down to record low, rock bottom, dirt cheap, level, uh, cheap levels. And, and that has really helped to promote the recovery that we have seen in the housing market and indeed spark not only the rise in home sales and refinance boom, but uh, also the uh, double-digit rise in home prices that we have seen over the past year. For the last 12 months, the average 30-year fixed-rate mortgage rate has averaged less than 3%. It's still running about 2.8% for prime credit borrowers in the marketplace. Incredibly low levels. Uh, we do anticipate mortgage rates will rise gradually over the course of the next year, because I do think soon we will hear from the Federal Reserve, that they will start scaling back, or in other words, tapering the amount of uh, bonds and mortgage-backed securities that they're acquiring in the market. I don't expect them to increase short-term interest rates anytime in the next year, uh, but it's possible, especially if inflation pressures seem to heat up, it's possible we could see the first uh, hike in short-term interest rates toward the end of 2022, if not then, in early 2023.
but we may see the tapering start to commence already by the end of this year. So upward pressure on mortgage rates, not a lot. We expect mortgage rates to average about a half a percentage point higher next year than where they are right now. Again, historically, very, very low mortgage rates, but higher than they are right now. And that has important implications for mortgage originations, primarily for refinance. And in this chart, I summarize what annual single-family mortgage originations have been for the last uh, several years and, and the projection that the industry um, uh, provides for this year and next. And to come up with this consensus industry forecast, I took the forecast that have been publicly released by the Mortgage Bankers Association, Fannie Mae, and Freddie Mac, and I averaged their forecasts together. That's for 2021 and 2022. Uh, so wide, wide um, uh, consensus that mortgage rates will be higher in 2022 and originations will be lower for refinance. What they consistently also have is a gradual increase in home purchase lending. And in, in my bar charts here, I have home purchase in blue at the bottom and refinance in red at the top. And you can see over quite a number of years, the blue portion has been growing and we expect that to continue. Uh, I do expect home sales, which this year I think will be the highest number of home sales since 2006, best in 15 years. I think we'll see even more home sales in uh, 2022 uh, with the strength of the economic re recovery, creating jobs and building income, and with mortgage rates only rising a very modest amount. The big change is refi. Uh, millions of homeowners have come in to refinance uh, the last 18 months. Uh, there are a dwindling pool of borrowers who have an incentive to refinance to lower their interest rate. Uh, but there's still some out there. And uh, I do expect that we'll see, certainly see some refinance next year, but it'll be a lesser amount. How much lower? Well, I plan to hit the consensus view. I do have to admit this wide difference of opinion as to how much refinance will dip. Um, and it really varies on your view on mortgage rates. If you look at the Fannie Mae forecast, they're forecasting only a 20 basis point increase in mortgage rates in 2022. The Mortgage Bankers Association is forecasting a 100 basis point increase in mortgage rates with uh, a commensurately steeper decline in refinance. So it really varies uh, and it'll really be affected by really what we do see in terms of the path of mortgage rates next year. But nonetheless, the consensus view is a lot less refi, but purchase money and home sales continuing to rise next year. Um, I do want to uh, point out, though, that the complexion of borrowers who refinance when mortgage rates have come off their record lows tends to differ from what we would see during a typical refi boom. When rates have reached new lows and there's a major refi boom, uh, the cash out share of refinance generally falls. And we saw that once again in 2021, the cash out share of all refinance fell, fell down to around 20% of, lend, of refi lending in 2020 and the first part of 2021. When borrowers refinance after rates have gone up, oftentimes there's a different motivation or incentive for refinancing. For example, maybe they want to tap in 
to some of the accumulated home equity and do a cash out refinance. And that's typically what we do see. And that's what I expect we will see in the next 12 months. Those borrowers who come in to refinance in 2022, we will see that they have a, a large proportion of them are doing so because they want to tap into that equity. They want to do a cash out refinance. So we do expect the cash out refinance share of refinance business to rise. The other thing that we generally observe as well, looking at CoreLogic data, is that borrowers who come in to refinance when rates are going up generally have a lower credit score or they have a mix of attributes in their application that look like um, a little uh, uh, as if they have more credit risk. Maybe they have a little higher DTI, a little lower credit score, um, and are a little more challenging to underwrite, take more time. And what we'll see, um, what we've seen in the past, and I do expect that we will see in the coming year, is that the borrowers who come into uh, refinance and, and close their refinance loans tend to be those borrowers who have some more challenges, some more blemishes in their loan application, such as perhaps a little bit lower credit score. And they will be the ones who uh, uh, will uh, we'll see show up uh, in the refinance originations in uh, 2022. Um, I mentioned home prices. Uh, so home prices up double digit um, uh, just about everywhere in the country. Um, on Tuesday, CoreLogic released the Case-Shiller Home Price Index for the, for the U.S. and for 20 markets uh, through the month of July. Uh, if you saw the headlines, national index up 20% on a year-over-year basis. Uh, the largest increase we've seen in the CoreLogic Case-Shiller Index. Uh, the CoreLogic Home Price Index, which is re related but a little different, goes back 45 years. Likewise, uh, the latest numbers we released for the month of July, biggest 12-month gain in the whole 45-year history of the CoreLogic Home Price Index. Now, we are forecasting a moderation in price growth, not immediately, maybe not next month, maybe not the month thereafter, but as we'll start to see some slowing later this year, carrying into 2022. And what I've highlighted here on this chart is a summary of our of the past, but also our forecast for the national home price growth in 2022 and into 2023. And you can see that dramatic uh, slowing in price growth, price growth averaging 5% in 2022 and easing a bit further the 4% in 2023. We're not forecasting a price drop. We are not forecasting a popping of a bubble and prices crashing, no. We do expect prices to rise, but not at a double-digit pace. We're expecting some moderation in home buyer demand because affordability is, is, uh, will, will be eroded further. So that'll moderate some of the demand to buy homes. But we're also expecting some additional supply to come onto the market as we get into early 2022, and that moderates price growth. Um, there are some risks out there just because price growth uh, moderates, and just because uh, we expect the national index to rise doesn't mean prices are going to rise everywhere. Uh, in, in fact, that's very, very rare for something like that to happen. Much more common is the fact that the national index maybe is rising, but there are a variety of communities 
that see price declines. That's the much more typical pattern. And that's what we anticipate for next year, too. Even though the national index, we expect to continue to rise, there will be communities that will be exposed to price declines, uh, largely related to weakness in their local economy, weakness in job creation and income growth in those local economies. Uh, the market risk indicators that CoreLogic um, uh, produces provide some guide uh, as to what markets could be um, the places that might experience that type of risk, the, the risk of price declines. And I've highlighted what the latest uh, market risk indicators suggest in terms of the likelihood of a price decline. Uh, and then I plotted along with that of what the current unemployment rate is. And as you can see in each one of these markets, the unemployment rate is well above the current national level. Currently, the national unemployment rate is 5.2%. So these are our local markets that clearly are laggy in terms of uh, job gains and performance relative to uh, what we're experiencing nationwide. These are markets also where uh, we believe that there's a heightened risk of price declines over the next 12 months. One last thing I want to close with uh, is that with the double digit, 20 percent um, home price gains that uh, most uh, uh, many people have experienced, many homeowners have experienced throughout the country, that does lessen the risk of having a foreclosure tidal wave uh, for the borrowers who've been through a, a great deal of financial distress over the course of the last 18 months and will be exiting from forbearance now and over the next several months. We did an estimate using CoreLogic data uh, to estimate how much home equity uh, borrowers who are in forbearance have. And, and to estimate it, we also took all the missed payments that they had missed, summed them up, added it to their mortgage loan balance to compute net home equity. Do they have anything left if we do that? Uh, and fortunately, because of all of the home value gain, all the price rise over the last year, what we did find was that uh, by far, um, nearly all, not all, but nearly all of the homeowners who are in forbearance have some amount of home equity left, even after you add in all the missed payments. We estimated about 2% of the borrowers in forbearance, or roughly about 30,000 uh, borrowers, since there's roughly one and a half million who are currently in forbearance, uh, have missed payments and have would have no home equity left if we add in all those missed payments to the loan balance. Uh, in my mind, that limits the, um, or re reduces the um, uh, concerns about a tidal wave of foreclosures coming out of, um, uh, the, the ending of the forbearance program. It's not to say there won't be any distressed sales. There, sadly, there will be some distressed sales. Uh, we are expecting an uptick in distressed sales and foreclosures and REO, but just an uptick, not a tidal wave going forward. Let me stop there and uh, uh, I'll pass it back to, uh, to Pete. Super. Thank you, Frank, for a terrific presentation, which I think really uh, tees up this discussion beautifully uh, in terms of the major trends we're seeing in the market. feels like while there's some um, headwinds, there's, there's a few tailwinds and overall some reasons to be optimistic. Um, and of course, this discussion is going to be about servicing 
where um, really amongst the major considerations at this point are we've got many borrowers who are exiting CARES Act forbearance uh, as we speak and will continue to, and they will enter into the loss mitigation programs of their investors, their lenders, um, um, which the servicers have to manage. So we're going to really try to focus in on what are some of these trends we've been seeing, how they're different this time around, how's the servicing industry different this time around, and how does it differ from the financial crisis of 2008? And then what are some of the things we're seeing on the ground as servicers try to wrestle with the, the challenges of um, uh, um, managing loss mitigation and all these borrowers exiting CARES Act forbearance? So um, let's get started with um, kind of this notion of how things are different this time around. So, um, you know, maybe we could start with Meg, uh, if you don't mind, just would you maybe you could give us a little bit of an overview of just what's like, how would you summarize, particularly from a policy perspective, what's different this time around as opposed to, say, the financial crisis of 2008? Sure, sure. Absolutely. Uh, you know, from a policy perspective, the programs are much, much better this time around. Um, not going to lie, the HAMP program was highly problematic. People have finally come around to acknowledging that there was a, a period where, you know, um, people were really trying to make it work, but it was a very cumbersome program. And the vast majority of borrowers who were served in the last crisis were saved through proprietary programs and not the government's flagship program, the HAMP program. Um, and it was mainly because the documentation requirements were so very difficult. Consumers couldn't pull together the information that was necessary and therefore, you know, couldn't be served. Um, so this time around, we have fantastic programs from the government that are all really streamlined. Um, I would say one of the most interesting differences this time around, however, is that these, the programs were perhaps based on some of the lessons learned from the from the last crisis, but frankly, when we entered this crisis, nobody knew how long this pandemic would go on. And there were a lot of conversations about trying to model the programs on natural disaster programs, because we all expected there to be some period of forbearance for these customers. We actually expected it would be a short-term forbearance, you know, maybe up to six months. Um, and then we wanted a very streamlined exit strategy. The workout solutions should be seamless to move these customers who, but for a national or global pandemic would be paying their mortgages. We needed a seamless exit for them back into uh, you know, performing status. And so the programs were really designed with that in mind. Of course, as we all know, the pandemic has gone on and on and on. And so some of the forbearance periods have extended out to 18 months. Um, but I would say that to me, that's the primary difference between last time and this time programmatically. Um, I also do want to just say that as I was in the government the last time around, and maybe we were helpful and responsive, but I will say that the government has been exceptionally engaged with all of the various stakeholders this time, and it's been very, very helpful. So we really appreciate that. Completely. So it's very helpful. So uh, Mike, how about just turning to you real quick? So, so from your perspective, what are some of the um, uh, consumer or homeowner uh, behavioral uh, patterns you're experiencing? What, what's different about this economy from your standpoint, whether that's like the presence of kind of this Delta variant or um, kind of um, patterns you might be seeing of, of, of homeowners moving um, from urban cores into suburbs, exurbs? I mean, any, anything you want to add about kind of what you're observing on the ground and how that's kind of shaping the response this time versus... Um, last time around? 
I, I agree. I actually, yeah, I agree. Oh, I think Mike might be having some some. Uh, oh, he's back. From a services point of view, I think the programs that are out there are really, really helpful. I think in turn, what is happening is we're educating. Oh, sorry about that. Connectivity um, the programs themselves. I think the education that we're providing, you knowing your options. Uh, hopefully are very helpful to the borrowers you know that we're able to to provide them that 18 months allowing them to to feel comfortable that there are solutions so i think it, it's going to be helpful to hear the full conversation head over to housingwire.com webinar now more than ever the housing industry is looking to its leaders for answers that's why each week the Housing News Podcast invites a new mortgage, fintech, or real estate executive to the show to provide its listeners with more perspective on the announcements and news stories crossing HousingWire's news desk. Hosted by Sarah Wheeler and produced by Elsina Lloyd, the Housing News Podcast is now available on iTunes, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, and more. Thanks for listening to HousingWire Daily. I hope you have a great afternoon. If you haven't already, make sure to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out on all the hottest stories crossing our news desk daily. The podcast is now available wherever you like to listen. Make sure to tune in tomorrow.